Taxonomy is the branch of science concerned with classification. Not to be confused with April 15th, the holiday every year. That's a different, that's a different thing. Uh, taxonomy asks the question, what's the difference between this and that? It helps to clarify, in scientific terms, precision as far as identification of what belongs to what category. Reptiles are cold-blooded. Mammals are warm-blooded. Taxonomy helps us kind of sort out the differences and even put labels on things to help understand them. It's important in life in general, I think, to be able to sort out what's what. But when we start thinking about our pursuit of the Lord and our spiritual lives, Taxonomy becomes even more important and more urgent. I'm thinking specifically this morning of the question, what is a disciple of Jesus? What is a Christian? What are they like? Who are they? What are their attributes? What is their identity? This is an absolutely crucial question because in our culture, as in any culture, there have been divergent views of genuine spirituality. People who are spiritually healthy look like this. And there's, there's, there's competition in the culture to say, this is what a truly spiritual person looks like. And this morning, as we come to Matthew 5, 1 to 10, we have an opportunity to not answer the question for ourselves, but to hear Jesus answer the question. Because as Jesus ministered in Galilee, as he was talking to people, he dealt with people who had a certain perception of what spiritual health looked like. They thought, what does a kingdom of of heaven look like? What does, or excuse me, what does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? What does the the follower of God actually look like? And they had this this, uh, image in their mind that was taught to them by the religious leaders of their day. The problem was that picture was wrong. And today, so often, We hear messages about what is right or good, what good people do, what spiritually healthy people are like. But again, it's all about taxonomy. Because they could be saying that this is what spiritual health looks like, and yet they could be woefully wrong. It's also important for us to know what a Christian is, because only in the kingdom of God can we find ultimate blessing and flourishing. Everybody's chasing blessing. Everybody's chasing satisfaction. And the fact is that, like so many others, we will often chase blessing and satisfaction through means and ends that can't get us there. But as we look to the Word of God, we find not only the, uh, the description of blessing, but the promise of blessing. True blessing. Genuine flourishing. Actual peace. Now, as we get into this Sermon on the Mount here, we will realize that one of the reasons Jesus takes so much time to explain what the marks of a disciple are, what what true Christianity looks like, is because it's easy to fake it. So many claim to be followers of God, and yet the reality in their lives proves otherwise. So this morning, whoever you are, you find yourself here at Green Palm Bible Chapel, and we have an opportunity to climb up the mountain with Jesus and to sit and listen to him explain what a disciple of his really is. As we do so, I think we'll all find encouragement and a particular challenge as we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So we're picking it up in Matthew 5 verse 1. 
And just at the end of chapter 4, Matthew had given us a a summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry, uh, preaching, teaching, healing ministry. And then we found out at the end of chapter 4 that large crowds were following him from the area of Galilee, from the Decapolis, even from Jerusalem, Judea, from all over the place. So Jesus has really gotten popular at this point. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, we see Jesus addressing his disciples in light of his popularity. As we'll see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's also for the general public. But the focus here is on the disciples uh, initially. Watch Matthew 5, verse 1. Matthew writes, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, and then we'll go on to the actual content in a second. So Jesus sees the crowds that have come to him, and he takes the opportunity to go up the mountain, up on the mountain. Now, let me show you, uh, we have a pretty good idea of the general region where this happened. I just want to give you the lay of the land. So here's the Sea of Galilee, right? Uh, Capernaum is right up here in the northwest corner, and all this northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee is fairly hilly. Okay, but at some points up here, there's enough, uh, there's like a plain up in the hills where a lot of people could easily gather. And if you remember in Luke's gospel, he calls this the Sermon on the Plain. Which is it, the Sermon on the Mountain or the Sermon on the Plain? Well, we'll talk about it. But let me show you uh, a couple photos of what this could look like uh, regionally. So here's the the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We're up here in the hills just above uh, Capernaum. And you can see, you know, the way the, the hills lie and where there's uh, obviously room for, uh, for people to gather. So um, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what that's all about. But anyway, uh, you, you just get the lay of the land, okay? So, um, so this is the, the whole region that looks like this in that northwestern side of the lake. So we don't know exactly. There's a, there's a church built on a spot that says this is where the, the Sermon on the Mount was preached. They don't know that. I mean, you know, it's, we're in the neighborhood. So that's something, uh, you know, something in terms of that you could picture in your mind. It's interesting though, and it's, I, I show you the picture because he doesn't say he went up to the plain and he doesn't even say he went up to the hills. He uses an interesting term in verse one. He says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And Matthew chooses that word specifically, not only because Jesus went up into the hill country here to actually give this uh, sermon, But also because going up on the mountain, singular, carries with it some Old Testament imagery, doesn't it? We could think specifically of Moses during the the time of the exodus of Israel and how Moses went up on the mountain. He initially went up on the mountain in Exodus 3 to investigate the burning bush and God speaks to Moses on the mountain. And then after the exodus, Moses leads the people to the foot of Mount Sinai. And again, Moses goes up on the mountain and he hears from God. Going up on the mountain in the Old Testament gave this idea of actually having greater vision and clarity as to what's really going on and even receiving revelation from God. And I think it's that exact significance that causes Matthew to just say here, you know, Jesus went up on the mountain and the people followed him so that they could hear from not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, the son of God incarnate. Because when you go up on the mountain, you go to hear God speak. That's the idea. Of course, we could think of other cases where God did dramatic works on a mountaintop. We could think of Mount Carmel with the prophet Elijah and the demonstration of God's power. Or you could think about even Zion, the location of, of uh, the temple and how that's at the top of, of that, uh, that hill there in Jerusalem and how it signifies, again, uh, communion with God and, and hearing from God. And so when Matthew says he went up on the mountain, maybe we should have some Old Testament expectations to hear from God. 
And specifically, we should note as we get into the details of the Sermon on the Mount here, that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. And this is important as an introduction, not just to the Beatitudes this morning, but to all of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. Again, he went up on the mountain. Here, perhaps Matthew intends us to understand Jesus as the greater Moses, who now doesn't just deliver the law, but actually fulfills the law and proclaims, let me tell you what the law is really all about. Let me tell you what true spirituality really looks like. We might say it this way. Jesus's word is the final word on all matters. This is a remarkable sermon, not only because it is an explanation of the significance of the Old Testament law and the life of of everyone who would follow Jesus. But it's also significant because in this sermon, Jesus gets very practical. He says, let's talk about the nuts and bolts. And as we spend the coming months walking through this chunk of teaching, we're going to have so many very practical areas of our lives confronted by the word of God given from Jesus. And I think it's important to ask before we get into the details this morning, are we ready for Jesus to dictate terms to us? Are we ready for Jesus to say, this is what a disciple of mine actually looks like. And are we ready to follow him when he speaks? Of course, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount gives like basically an assault on the idea of spirituality that was presented by the religious leaders of the day. And in fact, there were some different, uh, different basically groups of leaders in Israel in the first century that Jesus uh, deals with here. And I, we could just maybe review them quickly because it helps us, I think, think about how sometimes we think uh, fault, uh, in faulty ways about spirituality. For example, the most commonly known are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually the practical pastors, shepherds of the people, especially in Galilee. And these are the guys leading the synagogue groups. Um, they would have been the one you would have gone to to ask, you know, uh, should we get married? Uh, what does the law mean when it says this? And, and so on and so forth. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? You go to the Pharisee and then you're going to get answers to the real questions on your heart, right? The modern Pharisee, excuse me, the Pharisees though were all about well, they were all about doing. And as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we'll find out the Pharisees were big on performance. They, they weren't just going to give money to the poor. They wanted everybody to see them giving money to the poor, right? They weren't just going to come to worship. They were going to make sure that everybody saw them coming to worship. They weren't just going to fast and pray. They were going to make sure everybody knew they were fasting and praying. Their religion was defined by doing, by church attendance, by, uh, you know, doing sacrificial things in the sight of others, of course, the modern Pharisee is the same. We define spirituality by doing. A disciple is someone who goes to church this many times in a week or in a month or in a year. A true disciple is someone who gives this much of their income to the church. A true disciple is someone who goes on missions trips or, or the true disciple does this, that, or the other. Again, we might define spirituality by doing. There was another group, though, in the first century called the Sadducees. They were largely located mostly in Jerusalem. And they were actually the ones who controlled uh, the, the practice of Judaism in the temple. And so they were all about position. They weren't as theologically conservative as the Pharisees, but they had all the power. In fact, they were willing to compromise to get it. And for many people, spirituality is all about position. That you're not really spiritual unless you're an elder or a deacon or unless you're a pastor, unless you've got a degree from a seminary, 
It's all about having this particular position, this particular place of prominence. That, of course, Jesus will correct that faulty thinking. There was another group in the first century, the Zealots. Smaller group here, but these guys were all about the politics. And for them, true spirituality had to be expressed in political revolution. If it didn't have a political agenda, if it didn't result in political change, then it wasn't true spirituality. This is alive and well today, especially in the evangelical circles, where we might define spirituality by political action. This idea that, that if we're going to do anything worthwhile, it must be done politically, right? And although certainly Christians have a responsibility and opportunity to influence our nation politically, fundamentally a disciple of Jesus is not determined by political action. There was another group in the first century called the Essenes. These were the guys who, who got out of Dodge. They said, we got to go somewhere else. We need an isolated compound somewhere where we can get away from the noise and we can just focus on God. And so they went out and they created their own compound and tried to pursue the Lord there in, in isolation from the rest of the world. They defined their spirituality by separation. This is alive and well today also. Or maybe it's overwhelming as we get all these voices telling us all these different things and we see the sin, we see the worldliness, and we think we just got to get out of Dodge. And if we could just have a compound in Idaho, then we would be able to just worship God and we'd be at peace. There's sinners in Idaho too, I hate to tell you. This is alive and well today though. Sometimes we think, oh, if we could just isolate from the culture, then things would be better. But really that's no solution. The fact is, as Jesus addresses his disciples and, of course, the crowd that follows, he does so knowing there are faulty ideas about spirituality that people have bought into. And he teaches here, especially in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that a disciple, a citizen of the kingdom, a follower of God, someone who's truly spiritually healthy, is not what you've been told. It's not what's been modeled for you, perhaps. And it's certainly not what most people thought. So let's pick up the Beatitudes here and let's work through these uh, Beatitudes, verses 3 through, uh, 3 through 10. So we'll see eight Beatitudes. But let's, let's unpack this and see what's going on. As we do so, we're going to learn that, that kingdom character, the one that Jesus describes here, kingdom character is unexpected. It's not what people thought. But also, kingdom blessing is unsurpassed. Better than we can imagine. Kingdom character is unexpected. Kingdom blessing is unsurpassed. So let's unpack some of these Beatitudes and see what's going on. First, in verse 3, Jesus says, and Matthew records, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's hard for us, I think, to appreciate the shock value of this first beatitude because we're so familiar with it. But the structure, let's talk about the structure, then we'll get to the details of it. Here, Jesus proclaims a blessing. He just says, these people are blessed. Blessing in the Bible is, is a gift from God. In this particular case, this word for blessing is uh, often used in the, in the Old Testament. It's used in Psalm 1 to describe the person, again, who has received blessing from God, that they're flourishing, that they, they have a, a state of a blessing in the sight of God, and they're experiencing that practically. This is not so much saying you could be blessed if you will become this person, but the disciple is blessed. And this is, this is the circumstance that we find them in. This is their character, the character of the blessed, flourishing person. 
Now you don't often find the, the, the word poor associated with blessing. You don't often find the word or the concept of poverty associated with flourishing. How are you guys doing? You doing okay? I am so poor. We are doing awesome. Right? It's just, it's shocking. It's weird. Jesus, in the first beatitude here, he says, listen, it's not what you think. True spirituality. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when Jesus says poor in spirit, he's talking about humility here. It's the opposite of being poor in spirit would be to be proud, to be arrogant. The person who's poor in spirit knows they need help. Just like we were singing this morning. They know they need help. The person who's not poor in spirit, they don't need help. They're healthy. They're they're strong. They're wise. They've got it sorted out. So in the picture of ideal spirituality in the first century that was being uh, passed around to the, the population in Galilee, the picture was the people that are really spiritually healthy are, are they got it together. And they walk tall with their shoulders or back and they're dressed well and, and they, they present themselves well. Again, that, this is a Pharisee. But Jesus says, not so fast. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know they have need, who recognize their need, and who come to me. Now, the way Beatitudes work, it's a statement of blessing, surprising kingdom characteristic, and then the, the reason that they're blessed. Note verse one, or excuse me, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is not like they own it and, and God doesn't. But the idea here is they are members who have a stakehold in the kingdom of heaven. That they're shareholders in the kingdom. It's not just they're members of it, that they actually own part of it. That that's how much they have a stake in the kingdom. And so here Jesus says they might look poor from the outside. Not so much financially, but poor in spirit. Because they're humble. Because they're not haughty. They're not proud, right? They might look poor on the outside, being poor in spirit. But in actuality, they have... And they own the most valuable resource in the universe. The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is theirs. It belongs to them. This is an indicative. Jesus says, this is, this is what is true of my disciples. My disciples are blessed. They're poor in spirit. And even so, they're blessed. Why? Because the kingdom belongs to them. Again, it's hard for us to just really wrap our minds around how shocking this would have been to this audience. But the true disciple of Jesus, a true disciple here is humble. Jesus keys in on thoughts from the Old Testament law here in several ways. Isaiah 66 verse 2 comes to mind. You know, there's a recognition in the Old Testament as well as in the New that when we humble ourselves, that's the time when we finally will actually be exalted by the Lord. That's of course stated in James 4, 6 and in 1 Peter chapter 5. But as you think about how this passage applies to you, you can ask the question, am I a disciple in that I am poor in spirit? Some have described the Beatitudes as an invitation to discipleship, an invitation to be a follower of Jesus. You want to follow me, Jesus says? You're poor in spirit. But don't worry, you're not losing if you're poor in spirit. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven 
There's a future orientation here, as we'll see in all the Beatitudes, to true flourishing and blessing. That we will experience that blessing in eternity. But in the meantime, it may look to others from the outside that there's not much to us. Listen, you might be afraid, especially in New Jersey, uh, of being poor in spirit because you'll just get run over. (laughs) But you know what, brothers and sisters? That's okay. That's okay. Being poor in spirit is primarily here about our attitude towards the Lord. Where we say to God, I am in desperate need of your provision. That's why we sing songs like, come ye sinners. So we say together, God, we need you. And woe to us if we think we don't. Watch the second beatitude here in verse 4. Jesus goes on and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Kingdom character is unexpected. You don't often say, blessed are those who mourn. And we certainly don't often think it as we go through trials and difficulties and loss. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's saying, again, you may have been sold a faulty idea of spirituality. Because genuine faith doesn't look like someone who's never suffered and who has things easy and whose life is just a bunch of uh, wins all the time. Which, again, sometimes we're sold that idea. You know, if you were really a Christian, if you really had faith then you'd be experiencing all this blessing and you wouldn't be going through so much difficulty. But Jesus says, not so fast. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, maybe the the primary thought here is those who mourn sin. But there's two ways we mourn sin. We mourn our own sin. Obviously, it grieves us when when we actually realize what it is. So we mourn over our sin and turn to the Lord. But also, we mourn sin in general. When sin rears its ugly head in someone sinning against us or in sickness or in death. As we mourn, Jesus says, his disciples are blessed when they mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. He doesn't say my disciples are blessed because they'll never suffer. He says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. This language of being comforted may come from Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3. But a true disciple here mourns. Rather than living in denial or with some kind of distorted prosperity gospel view of the Christian life. I think there's two failures there. One is we could, again, pursue the prosperity gospel, which says, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you won't have any problems. Well, that's obviously not how God has designed the universe to work. But another pitfall here might be instead of mourning over sin, ours and others, we could just gloss over it and try to pretend it's not a problem. We have this, maybe this faulty impression that spiritual people aren't sad people. They don't go through hard times or they certainly don't show they're going through hard times. So you, you duct tape a a, a smile and just pretend on your face and just pretend like you're okay. But Jesus says, not so fast. Blessed are those who mourn. Because if you're his disciple, Mourning is temporary. You will be comforted. Now, it's interesting. There's a transition. In verse 3, we have the present tense. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And here for the rest of the middle beatitudes, we have future orientation. You, they will be comforted. So there is comfort coming for those who mourn. And it may not happen right at the second. You may still have to endure difficulty and challenge. And yes, there are going to be hard days. And you weep because you've lost. And you weep because of the pain. And you weep because of your failure. But when you've trusted in Christ and you're his disciple, you know comfort is coming. And so you are blessed, even when you cry. 
You are blessed even when you mourn. I think we've got to get past this plastic version of the Christian life where we pretend to be happy all the time. Brothers and sisters, we're not happy all the time. And there's a difference between circumstantial happiness and true joy, right, that we find in the Lord. But it's okay to say, I'm hurting right now. I'm in pain right now because I've lost this. Because someone has wronged me in this way. You think about just general, general suffering. I don't know about you. I mean, I have been flabbergasted as the numbers of dead from this earthquake in Turkey and Syria continues to climb. And it'll be over 30,000 probably before the day's done. And you think about the loss of life there. And you think about the, the difficulty of enduring tragedy like that on such a wide scale, uh, you know, measure. And you just have to say, listen, we don't put a plastic smile on and just pretend like it doesn't hurt. But when we're followers of Jesus, even as we mourn, we mourn with a confidence that comfort is coming. That this too shall pass. And one day we will experience true comfort. That's the flourishing we want. Watch verse 5 as Jesus continues. He says, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Some of your translations will say, Blessed are the meek, or blessed are the humble here. The idea here, of course, is that meekness or humility contrasts with harshness. And it's different from poverty in spirit in this way. Those who are poor in spirit, primarily that's a description of their relationship to God. They're humble with relationship with their relationship to God. But those who are humble or meek here, the idea is that they're humble in their relationship with others. Again, they're not harsh or insensitive. They downgrade their view of self and exalt their view of others. Perhaps Jesus is uh, alluding to Psalm 37 Uh, Verse 11 here, or there's many places in the Old Testament law where this is on display. But again, the idea is that in our relationship with others, if you're a true disciple, you don't run over people that you actually care about them. And so there's a a humility or or a, a carefulness, a meekness in how we handle each other. Again, a sensitivity. And again, unfortunately, what was being sold in the first century is this idea of spirituality may have been bold, brash, and, you know, we pursue the truth and we just run people over like that. And Jesus says, slow down. Slow down. Blessed are the humble. They may not be prominent in society. They may not be the top dog at the workplace. They may not have all access because they don't have as many funds or whatever else. But the fact is, if they're humble and they're meek, Jesus says they're blessed. Why? For they will inherit the earth. Again, I mean, you talk about a retirement package. This is the one you're looking for. They will inherit the earth. That picks up on the promises that God made to Abraham, right? That, that he would give his descendants the land, right? As you read in the scripture, we see that promise enlarged. The land doesn't just mean the land of Israel. He's talking about the land, the new earth. We're talking about our eternal home here. And so, yes, you may be humble in the eyes of culture. You may not be, again, the most wealthy or whatever. But you will inherit the earth because of your connection to Jesus. So it's okay if, if you're not the big dog right now. It's okay if you don't have the biggest bank account. It's certainly okay if you're not the one calling the shots. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Gives us a future promise of God's provision. And again, it's a description. You didn't think this is what the spiritual person looks like, but here they are. They're poor in spirit. They mourn, and they're humble. Watch verse 6. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they they will be filled. A true disciple here pursues righteousness. This is in contrast to pursuing worldliness. And again, we don't have to look far in the first century to see either Pharisees or Sadducees or zealots for that matter, making compromises in their pursuit of the Lord to get what they want. And so they're willing to, they're willing to either be hypocrites or they're willing to sell out or they're willing to just make compromises to, to be pleased. And so they give in to sin and they worship the idols of their culture in various forms. But here Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are chasing hard after righteousness. Now, what does he mean by righteousness, right? We know in the Bible, righteousness refers to right behavior, actually conducting yourself in a right way. And so the picture here, Jesus says, is of a true disciple, is someone who actually pursues living in a way that brings him glory. We want to make a careful distinction. This doesn't mean we get into the kingdom by virtue of our righteousness. Jesus is very clear. We're poor in spirit. We don't come to God saying we get in because we're qualified. No, we come to him begging, asking, God, we need grace. But Jesus's disciples, true Christians, right? Those who have genuine spirituality, they don't go, oh, I'm in the kingdom now. I guess I can just do whatever I want because I'm in, right? No, they actually hunger and thirst after righteousness. They chase after righteousness. They're pursuing it. You think about um, if you've ever had the pleasure of being on a diet. My doctor recently put me on a diet. He basically said, don't eat food that brings you joy. That was the diet. (laughs) No gluten. (laughs) No carbs, no dairy. Just avoid what brings you joy. Awesome. I have noticed in this state uh, that um, when, when you don't have the thing, when you haven't been able to have the things that you like, right, that, that hunger will drive you. <laughs> it pushes you. Yeah, you're chasing it. You're longing after it. You want it, right? Jesus says, truly spiritual people, my disciples, they don't chase after money. And they're not chasing after food. And they're not chasing after position or social prominence. They're not chasing after a particular house or a particular family, whatever. It says they're chasing after righteousness. Real righteousness that is transform, transformation in our lives. This is actually an assault on hypocrisy. And we'll, we'll circle back to that in a later beatitude. But we see it reflected in the Old Testament in all, all kinds of places. Psalm 42, Isaiah 55, well, the fact is, Jesus says that, that the real disciple chases righteousness more than other things. That that's what drives them on a daily basis. But it may not look cool, and it certainly may not be what's in fashion. It may not be what everybody else is into, but they're chasing after righteousness. The blessing here is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. They will be satisfied. What I like about this is Jesus says, you're chasing after righteousness. And if you, if you chase after righteousness for one day as a sinner, you'll realize I can't, I just can't do it. I struggle. I can't live the way God has called me to live with perfection. And yet Jesus says, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. Here the book of Romans helps us where it tells us that righteousness is gifted to us by faith in Jesus. 
And so while that's happened positionally right now, if you've trusted in Christ, you are justified in the sight of God. You're declared righteous. We are practically growing in our, in our living out of that righteousness. But one day we will be filled, satisfied. We will be righteous, not just positionally, but practically. And so in the meantime, what do we do? We chase it. We run hard after it. Again, there's a caution here against hypocrisy. You might think of, of athletes who have a genuine love for their, their game, their sport, versus athletes who just want to be famous, right? There's genuine love for what is actually valuable here. And so the true disciple pursues righteousness. Now, this first batch of of Beatitudes talks about these reversals. You mourn, you'll be comforted. Uh, You're poor in spirit, but the kingdom of heaven is yours. Um, You know, you pursue righteousness, you'll be filled. But here, the second batch, maybe it's a little bit more on the reward side, just the the blessing side of it. Watch what happens uh, as Jesus continues in verse 7. Again, kingdom character is unexpected, but kingdom blessing, oh, it's unsurpassed. Verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy here is in contrast with cruelty or insensitivity. It's a little bit of like that, that beatitude of meekness or humility that we talked about earlier. But here, there's really an emphasis on how we relate to others, especially others who have wronged us. And again, this is so difficult because... In our natural sinful state, when people wrong us, we want to take revenge. Vengeance is mine, says me, right? And we're going to get them right. And that's whether we're driving on the road or whether it's someone at work or in the family. But when people wrong us, man, that desire to just get back at them is, it's inherent in us because of our sin. But Jesus says, actually, the blessed one is the one who's merciful. Because that one will receive mercy. And here the connection, it's not so much a reversal as Jesus says, those who are my followers are merciful people to others, and they are the ones who will experience mercy eternally. So there's a future look here at the blessing of God's mercy in eternity to come. That doesn't mean God hasn't been merciful to us now. God has been merciful to us now in Christ. But God's mercy is not exhausted for you and me. So we have actually freedom to be merciful with others because we know that God has been merciful with us. This is on display like in Ephesians 4.32 where we forgive others as God in Christ forgave us. We're called to this this transformation in our attitude toward others. I wonder this morning, are, are you merciful to others? Or is your life marked with an insensitivity or a selfishness? Maybe even cruelty if they catch you at the wrong time. Brothers and sisters, God has been so merciful to us. What right do we have to take vengeance into our own hands? Jesus goes on, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus perhaps picks up terminology here from uh, Psalm 23, but as he does, excuse me, Psalm 24, but as he does so, he highlights the need for authenticity. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are the real deal. Blessed are those who actually are authentic in their pursuit of the Lord. Why? For they will see God. In the psalm, the pure in heart ascend to the holy hill, to the mountain. And it's on Mount Zion where they fellowship with the Lord because they are covered by sacrifice. Here, Jesus says, you want to talk about true spirituality? Let's talk about being the real deal. Being authentic or genuine in your pursuit of the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, not the hypocrites. 
Not the fakers. Not the ones who are doing it just for show. Jesus reveals to us here that motivations matter. That our motivation matters for why we, we do what we do. Again, some expressions of spirituality then and today, the focus is on doing. So, you know, it doesn't matter why you come to church. Just make sure you show up. It doesn't matter why you give money. Just give money. It doesn't matter why you, you know, just all of that. But the fact is, it does matter why. It does matter why. Jesus says, yeah, there's blessing. There's blessing for the pure in heart. And it's the pure in heart who will see God who fellowship with God, who will experience that intimacy with God forever. Again, being satisfied, experiencing true flourishing, true peace, true satisfaction. Jesus says, that's what my disciples get. And they get it because I've transformed them. And indeed, they are pure in heart. There may be a warning here that knowledge of the Bible is not enough. Knowledge of the Bible does not equal authenticity. And so while we're big fans of the Bible, and rightly so, you just got to be careful that, that you're not pursuing Bible knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But no, I'm, I'm pursuing the knowledge of God and his word because I'm pursuing God. There's an authenticity here, a genuineness in the true disciple. So a true disciple is genuine. Watch verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The peacemaker here is the opposite of the one who is quarrelsome. They're not always starting fights. They're not the instigator. They're helping to resolve conflicts. This is not someone who appeases a tyrant. And it's not someone who avoids conflict by hiding from it. The peacemaker actually positively contributes to peace by pursuing restoration and reconciliation when there's conflict. I think in many ways, the religious leaders of, uh, in Galilee in the first century would have maybe been classified more as quarrelsome or instigators. Remember the scene where Jesus and his disciples are walking? It was a Sabbath day and they're walking through a field. And remember, they were snacking on the grain, the tops of the grain. They were popping the grains off and at the top of the grain off and they were snacking on it. And like while they were doing that, there was a Pharisee hiding in the grain right there. He just pops up, you know, like, gotcha! You broke the law. You're working on the set. You know, like, and he's, he's after him. And it's like, who are these guys hiding in the field? Like, just waiting for the random, what? That's how much they wanted to start a fight. That's how quarrelsome they were. And sadly, some people who claim the name of Christ, they, all they want to do, they define their Christianity by who they're against, by who they're fighting. But Jesus says, that's not true spirituality, actually. You can desire good, even good doctrine. You can desire pure doctrine, and yet that can get sideways where all, you just want to pick a fight. You just want to tussle with somebody. And Jesus says, eh, blessed are the peacemakers. Not the ones instigating, and not the ones, again, avoiding conflict, but those who are willing to do the hard work of making peace, of restoring. Why? Well, for they will be called sons of God. Again, these are the citizens of the kingdom. And not just citizens of the kingdom, they're in the family, Jesus says. They will be called sons of God. So yeah, the, these, the, the Pharisees who were instigating all this conflict, they thought they were in. But Jesus says, slow down, not so fast. Because if all you're doing is picking fights, that may be a sign that you're not my disciple. And you're not 
a son of God, and you won't be welcomed into his kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Which finally leads to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Here again, we have a reversal. An unexpected statement of blessing. What? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness? Persecuted because of righteousness? We don't usually say anybody persecuted is blessed. But Jesus says, not so fast. Because if you're a truly a, a, citizen of king, a citizen of the kingdom, if you're truly my disciple and you're poor in spirit and you're humble, right? And you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And yes, you mourn, right? And you're merciful and you're pure in heart and you're a peacemaker. Then you are going to take heat right now. That there are going to be people who are going to push back against you. And in another place, Jesus tells his disciples, just be careful because the world's going to treat you the way it treated me. So yes, you're going to take heat for being a follower of Jesus. But he says, blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Even if you suffer for your faith, you are blessed. Why? Well, he repeats here the first beatitude. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Because they can take your house. They could take your retirement fund. They could take your job. They could take your friendships. They could take your social standing. They could take your access to certain benefits in society. They can take your freedom. And they can take your life. But they can't take you out of the kingdom. So Jesus says, if you face persecution because of righteousness, you are blessed may not seem like it. I think in many ways, the spiritual ideal of the day as today would be to avoid persecution at all costs. The opposite of this beatitude in my mind is laziness or love of comfort. Where when we know we're going to take heat for being a follower of Jesus, we just choose the easier road. I'd rather just go the other way. But again, Jesus confronts this idea. He teaches it in so many other places. John 15, 2 Timothy 3. I mean, there's so many other places where we're reminded that if you're going to really follow me in this world, that it's not going to always be easy. Now, we live in a time and a place where there's not a ton of heat for following Jesus, although maybe the temperature is increasing in our culture. But we have to ask the question, nonetheless, am I willing to follow him even when it gets hot? Am I willing to follow him even when it costs me? Kingdom character is unexpected, but kingdom blessing is unsurpassed. We want the blessing now. We want to be comforted now. We want the kingdom in its fullness now. We certainly want the vindication now. But Jesus says, hold on. Let's talk about what a disciple really is. Because in the meantime, in the short run, it won't look like blessing to the world around you. But this is what, this is what citizens of my kingdom look like. When Jesus delivers this message, he does so in a way that shockingly reoriented his hearers. And when Matthew records it, I think he intentionally puts it towards the beginning of his gospel. His gospel has like four big chunks of teaching in them. And this is the first big chunk of teaching. Why would he do it that way? Well, he intentionally puts the Sermon on the Mount early to help us understand all the conflict between Jesus and the religious professionals of his day. And Matthew's gospel is full of it. We're going to continue to see this conflict over and over between Jesus and the religious, religious establishment. 
Well, where does that come from? It comes from different ideas about what has God actually called us to. It comes from a different taxonomy of Christianity, a different definition of true spirituality. But you know what? If you read Matthew, so we read, we've got the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read how Jesus continues to do miracles and prove his identity as the Son of God who brings the kingdom of God, but he'll continue to teach. But then as we get to the climax of his gospel, what do we find? Well, we find Jesus himself going to the cross for us. When Jesus goes to the cross, he demonstrates what it looks like to be poor in spirit. He shows us what mourning looks like. When Jesus goes to the cross, he certainly is humble. When Jesus goes to the cross, he does so out of hunger and thirst for righteousness. And even on the cross, Jesus displays his mercy, doesn't he? Of course, in going to the cross, Jesus proves he's no hypocrite. He's pure in heart. And when he got... When he went to the cross, Jesus made peace. And he certainly was persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus is the king who embodies what discipleship is all about. He's the king who shows us what the kingdom ethic looks like lived out. And I think we need to hear the Sermon on the Mount in two ways as you apply it. The first is, don't view it as a to-do list to get into heaven. Okay, this is not how it works. It's not a to-do list for how to get into heaven. This is a declaration of what Christians are like. Okay, so if you have put your faith in Jesus, God has called you to this, this lifestyle, right? But secondly, we can ask as followers of Jesus, how can I grow as a disciple? And maybe there are particular beatitudes that for you, you would say, you know what? I'm struggling there. I'm having a hard time there. And if, if you know that there's an area where you're struggling, then ask Jesus to help you. And maybe you're pushing back a little bit because you don't think that's very blessed <laughs> to live that way. But just remember that these, these promises, these statements that Jesus makes about blessing, that they are guaranteed based on his performance for us. Inevitably, if you look at the Beatitudes, we'll see ways that we failed. But if we have to... We have to remember the rest of the gospel of Matthew that says, by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, are we forgiven of our failings. And that's how we receive the blessings that are described here. You see, Jesus is the king who not only embodies the kingdom ethic, but who equips us to follow him. I know you want blessing. I know you want to flourish and thrive. But the only way we're going to do it is through kingdom character, Right, kingdom character, that's unexpected. That's what he's called us to. And we'll experience those kingdom blessings one day. Kingdom blessings that are unsurpassed. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us live in light of these truths. Lord, we thank you for this crucial aspect of your word. This calling to genuine spirituality, true discipleship. And Lord, we thank you for this radical teaching that reorients us towards what true faith looks like as it's lived out. We pray that you would help us as we have confessed faith in you to follow you and to embrace the unlikeliness of these blessings. Lord, to recognize that it is good for us to be poor in spirit and we are blessed when we mourn. Lord, that 
that we're blessed when we're humble, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we're merciful, when we're pure in heart, Lord, when we're peacemakers, and even when we're persecuted. And we pray that you would give us that future orientation where we recognize that our ultimate fulfillment is yet to come, but it is guaranteed. And so we can persevere in faith today. Lord, help us to confront faulty ideas of spirituality in our culture and especially in our own hearts as we might lean one way or the other. And Lord, help us to see that this is what you have made us in Christ and what you call us to today. Help us to follow in faith, we ask. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.